0: Good morning. i morning. Uh, we're in a brand new series called Strange Days Indeed, and let me just a little, give you a little disclaimer before we get started today. The series really starts next week because today we're just going to lay some groundwork and we're going to get on our horse and ride because the whole point of our talk today is just to focus on the fact that God does something that no one else can do, and that is that he tells us the future. I want to make the point that we're living in strange days i'm 55 years old i've lived through a lot of stuff some of you are older than i and you've lived through more stuff and we've lived through unusual days but these are the strangest days i've ever lived in because when i think about how things are happening socially polit- politically economically geopolitically um and then just looking culturally what's going on in our world today i'm i'm looking at a world that can't continue as it is right now so really it's important to me to to know what God has to say about the future. And so we're going to take a look today at God's ability to tell the future, and, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to do something really different. We're going to take an overview of the world from its beginning until the eternal state. And so I, I, we're going to, both of us are going to work together in this, and we're going to look at a lot of Scripture, and we're going to see God's plan unfold. But before we do, I want to make the point that God does something that no one else can do, and that is... God can tell the future. Now look at this, this is from the book of Isaiah, I am the Lord, that is my name. That is like God giving you his business card. Some of you, (laughs) some of you are investors, you would totally freak out today if if Warren Buffett showed up in the parking lot and said, hey, I want to have lunch with you and I want to tell you where I think this thing is going economically. A lot of you would just go completely out of your minds to have the Oracle of Omaha tell you what's going to happen in the future. But this is better than that because God says everything I prophesied has come true. Well, some of you have lost money listening to that oracle, right? Your Berkshire stock, if you had any, is not quite what it was. Even somebody as smart as Warren Buffett or anybody else you want to put in there from, you know, Wall Street Journal or from pop culture or from cable news. Anybody else that you, Jim Cramer, anybody, anybody else, they cannot say what God is saying. God has said, everything I promise has come true. God has never promised anything in the Bible that did not come true. Some people have the idea, especially if they come from, and I'm going to talk fast today, please forgive me, okay? Just hang with me. A a, a lot of us have come from contrarian viewpoints, and we've heard people say things like this, especially at the university or whatever. Oh, yeah, all those prophets in the Bible, just crazy-eyed dudes. How do you know they didn't just sit around and make it up? God had a little, mm, he had a little thing about that. He told the people that if a prophet spoke in his name and what he prophesied didn't come true, they were to whack him. That had a chilling effect on freelancing back in the day. (laughs) Even Balaam, the prophet as wicked as he was, told the king Balak, look, I can't stop. I I can't say anything less than God says. I can't say anything more than he says. I don't want to end up dead, which he almost did. That's another story. But here's the point, God is saying, everything I prophesied, here's my business card, I'm God, everything I prophesied has come true. And then you go back to the Bible, because 30% of the Bible is God telling the future. And a lot of the stuff has already happened. For instance, if you were just to take the story of Jesus, how much of the story of Jesus was foretold? Well, we'll see in a few moments in Genesis chapter 3.15, the very first mention, God said he would be born of a virgin, uh, be born of the seed of a woman. By Genesis 49, he would be from the tribe of Judah. Uh, from Numbers 24:17, there would be a star or a heavenly body associated with his birth. Micah 5:2, he'd be born in Bethlehem. On and on and on it goes. I mean, there have been scholars who have calculated the percentage of possibility that all these prophecies about Jesus, given as they were, could come true just as they did, and it's it's infinitesimal. So God is saying, "Look, I'm God. When I tell you the future, I've never missed everything I've ever said." is here. And now God said, I will prophesy again. In other words, I'm going to tell you about stuff that hasn't happened yet. I will tell you the future before it happens. Well, a lot of us look at that and we think, and especially if you're like me and you grew up in church, you think, well, okay, if God knows the future and there is such a thing as prophecy, just how does this go down when we think about the world that we live in today? Does God simply foreknow what happens and he has no control over it? Or Does what people do make any difference at all? Is is it all just, are we all just robots acting out of script? Because I know there's some in theology who have the idea that God just determines everything everybody does. And I think that's nuts, but we'll save that for another day too. Well, this is an imperfect illustration, but let me tell you the best illustration I can give you. About God knowing the future and things that people do having an impact on it. And yet God still knowing how it's going to come out. I am a fan of the Dallas Cowboys, and I just simply ask for your pity. (laughs) I do not want to be a fan of the Cowboys. I would like to shake that. If you know a 12-step program that's effective, (laughs) I will turn myself in. But I grew up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and I cannot help myself. For over 40 years, I have been watching games as long as guys have the star on the side of their hat. They may be on parole. I mean, it's just... (laughs) Whatever. I, I am a Dallas Cowboy fan, and I, would, I can't help myself. Now, I don't have much time to watch games anymore because I'm so busy, so I do what a lot of you do. I TiVo the game, and then I'll watch it later. So it happened the other day. Cowboys won. Boy, that's unusual. The Cowboys won. And so I knew the, I knew the score before I started watching the game, but I started watching the game. Now, here's the thing. I'm watching stuff happen As I watch the game, I am watching runs, passes, interceptions. I'm watching kickoff returns, so on and so forth. Now, here's the deal. As I watch that play out, I know what's going to happen. I know the final score. But here's the deal. Decisions and acts that players made in real time affected the outcome. It affected the outcome that I foreknow. So that's two aspects of the three that we need to think about in God being able to tell the future. There is a third aspect where my analogy totally breaks down. Because although it's true that God knows what's going to happen, and yes, indeed, it is true that the actions of people have a bearing on the outcome, here's where it all breaks down. God can determine the final outcome. I can't. If I could, the Pittsburgh Steelers and Washington Redskins would never have a good day in Dallas again, I assure you. <laughs> now, God knows the future stuff. People do make a, it makes a difference in the final outcome. But God absolutely refuses to lose. He has a thing about that. He just will not lose. He will bring the final outcome out the way he wishes. And in our lives, on a more practical basis, we know this from Romans chapter 8, verse 28, because people do stuff to us all the time that's not good, and yet God has promised to make all things work together for good in our lives. Okay, do you see how those three things work? All right, let's jump right in. I want to share with you ten different points Of God's eternal plan. And um, I I want you to see God's plan. Can I just vent my spleen and I promise I'll calm down in just a moment here. If I go to one more movie, especially generated toward kids, in which some evil villain wants to destroy the planet and some savior comes along to save the planet, I promise you I'm going to throw up. I've been watching this since I was a kid watching Saturday morning television. Somebody's going to destroy the planet and somebody's going to save the planet. Let me tell you, we're already too late. There was somebody who tried to destroy the planet. There is a savior who is going to save the planet. And and here's the deal. I recycle I try to be as green as I can reasonably be, but I want you to know I'm not going to save the planet because I save paper bags and recycle them. The planet's in more trouble than that. And it's going to take more than the foolish flailing around of people trying to save the planet. We need a real rescuer to save our planet for the trouble it's in. Let me take a few moments. I am going to give you 10... I'll calm down. I promise. I'll give you 10 things... think about if you want to think about the history of the world and its future how it all fits together all right here we go let's jump right in number one god made a perfect world with humans as his crowning creation placed them in paradise desiring to share his wealth and company with them when god and by the way and i know that there will be some of you who have a different point of view and i respect your point of view but at the same time you need to expect me to be a strong advocate for what i believe i'm not I'm not trying to jam anybody, but at the same time, I'm not going to play patty cake. I believe God created the world. I mean, to me, someone said, Well, Mark, now that's not science, that's religion. Well, now, wait a minute. I struggle with that because when people tell me it's not science, I always discover that they will never allow me to employ the science of possibilities, probabilities, and statistical things. For some reason, we must push statistical science off the table whenever we think about origins. Is it possible? That everything that we know of life with all of its complexity and sophistication, all the interrelation of systems, is it possible that it could have all happened by accidental chance? I guess in the extreme world of infinite chances of stuff, someone could argue that it's possible. Here's my question. Is it probable? And I think that's where there's a whining in the road. This is an old statement, as you can tell, but I like what someone said. He said, you're telling me that transmogrifications from the primordial ooze could result in Cindy Crawford? <laughs> so I'm not trying to jam you. You can say, well, Mark, I don't, I don't believe that there's a God who has anything to do with it. All right, well, well let me just tell you what I believe. I, I believe that we are the product of a loving God who made a perfect world, and in his perfect world with with all his creation he gave humans his humans his crowning creation he placed them in paradise the garden of eden with the with the joy of sharing his wealth and his company with him here is something number two that often gets overlooked in church the second thing is god gave human beings authority why he did this i'll never know but he chose to do it god gave the first humans authority look at this verse from the book of genesis god blessed them who's them adam and eve and said to them be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule. God created this magnificent world, and to the first human beings, and by the way, as we'll see, genetically speaking, we were still in, inside our first parents' bodies, by us by extension. God, God built this magnificent planet, put them in paradise, and said, Rule, you have authority. But number three, in an unparalleled, disastrous moment, our first parents, Adam and Eve, committed treason, surrendered their authority to God's mortal enemy and unwittingly came under his sentence of doom. Now, we were talking about the history of the, of the world, so I didn't include the part about Satan, but Satan, of course, is God's mortal enemy. Before the world was ever created, Satan was the most powerful of the angels. He was an archangel, I believe, along with Michael. Satan's responsibility was to lead the other angels in worship, but one day he got a little filled up with worshiping God and thought, why should God get all this stuff and not me? And he said, I will be God. And he talked to a third of the angels, according to Revelation, and going along with him. Time out. Every once in a while I'm speaking, you know, someplace in a secular environment. Someone will come up to me afterwards and will say, well, you, you religious people, which I hate that because I'm not a religious person, but I'll just go ahead and sort of receive it for the moment. You religious people, you just, you, 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 you have a God, so you have to come up with an opposite and equal Nemesis. And so you invent a God and you invent a Satan. I want to tell you a couple things. Number one, he may be opposite God, but he is not equal God. And he doesn't even qualify for being a nemesis. God got ready to kick him out. God just thumped him out of heaven along with a third of the angels who rebelled with him. So he is not God's equal. But he is God's enemy in the sense that he hates God. And here is the thing. When he rebelled against God, he came under a doom. He came under A destructive judgment I want you to look in Matthew because we're gonna learn something because a lot of you have asked questions probably through the years what about hell and how could a loving God send people to hell you're about to get the answer to that question and the answer is God doesn't want to send any people to hell look at this then the king will turn to those on the left and say away with you you cursed ones into the eternal fire well what do you think eternal fire refers to help me hell Prepared for who? For whom? I know that's good grammar. Prepared for the devil and his demons. God didn't prepare hell for people. See, Satan knew from the very beginning. God thumped him out and God said, go to hell. That he prepared for him. And he knew he wasn't going to do it right then. But so at that moment, Satan becomes God's mortal enemy. And God puts his wonderful, loving creation, Adam and Eve, on the planet. And Satan says, I'm going to mess with them and when adam and eve committed treason they surrendered the authority that god gave them over to him and they came underneath the same sentence that he was under they chose his way they got his sentence do you know what mark hoover had to do to be under the sentence of hell absolutely nothing just be born just be born i was i was a diseased person born to diseased parents Since all of us, genetically speaking, were still in the bodies of our first parents, number four, we too came under the same sentence. Wow, if it stopped right there, ooh, this would be a terrible weekend. But I love number five, and this is so important. God loved us too much to let us go. And he came up with an ingenious, still unfolding plan to reclaim the earth and especially its people i want to just stress god came up with an ingenious plan and the plan that we're going to talk about today see because a lot of us have we grew up and i want to talk to those of you who grew up in church for a moment and you're already freaked because we're going to talk about prophecy because you sat in church like i did and you heard somebody talk about well jesus is coming back like that nut job that says he's coming back at a particular day or time and you heard a lot of junk and so a lot of us we just like we've heard bits and pieces of prophecy jesus is coming back you know people will be driving in cars the next thing you know they're going to disappear in the car go off a cliff and we've heard all those things what we don't understand is this is all part of a comprehensive plan and so god loved the world too much to let us go came up with an ingenious still unfolding plan now look at genesis chapter 3. now this is the first time that god begins to explain his plan to reclaim the human race and do you know who he's talking to this is interesting he is talking to a person for whom it will do no good he is talking to Satan now this is when in the Garden of Eden after our first parents have sinned God comes along he is confronting them and now he is confronting Satan and here's what he is saying you think you've won don't you you think you've beaten me you think you've destroyed my creation and God is saying let me just tell you what I'm about to do to you and I will cause hostility between you Satan and the woman between your offspring and her offspring wait a minute why did God say her offspring because obviously Adam was standing there that's the first couple you would have thought that, that God would have said between you guys offspring but he didn't he focused on the woman and he and, the, and and he said I'm gonna to the to Satan I'm gonna put enmity between you and her offspring and then next next part of the verse He will strike, now now we're talking about one person. We're not talking about the whole human race here. We're talking about one individual. He will strike your head and you will strike his hill. This is the first mention in the Bible of Jesus Christ. God was saying to Satan, You think you've beaten me, but you haven't. I'm going to send the seed of the woman into the world. And he said, You're going to strike at his hill. I think that's the cross. I think that's when Jesus died on the cross. You know, hurts to have your heel struck at. Get over it in about three days, right? Maybe? <laughs> Jesus died on the cross, and, and he said to Satan, You're going to strike at his heel, but he's going to stomp your head. That's my plan. Now, why did he say, See to the woman? If you look in Romans chapter 5, the answer is there. Let's look at this. Here it is in a nutshell just as one person okay now wait a minute now we got something kind of interesting here because a moment ago instead of saying the seed of the of adam and eve two people he said the seed of the woman and now he's we know that our first parents both ate the fruit and disobeyed god but look at this just as one person did it wrong and got us in all this trouble with sin and death he didn't say two people got us in trouble he said one person who did god hold accountable for the treason in the garden of eden He held the man responsible because the woman was deceived. The man had gotten straight instructions from God. God said specifically to Adam, don't commit this treason. And Adam willfully and knowingly did it. And so as a result, it was Adam who got us into trouble. And by the way, let's just pause that verse right there for a moment. Because I want to explain the seed of the woman, deal. Some of you ladies knew this already. You didn't need need the theology on this. The sin nature... Is passed down by the Father. That broken, warped nature that just aims us toward hell, it is passed down by the Father. And so God had to find a way to get someone into this world who does, because time out, could I just back up just a little bit more here? Here's the thing if God's plan was in sending Himself as God to come and run the table, Well, then that wouldn't help us because the human race had fallen. God's already going to heaven. There has to be a human being who becomes a champion for us, who pays for our sin and brings back what our first parents lost. So it's got to be a human being. But on the other hand, this human being can't have a human father because if he has a human father, then he's going to inherit a sin nature. So somehow God has got to get his human being into the world who has God as his father and a human for a mother. So he's God and human at the same time once in a while somebody will say, well, I don't know about the virgin birth. Man, that's biologically impossible. Hence the point. Guy <laughs> got the first human beings here with no father or mother. He's God. I mean, that's why he gives you his card. I'm God. See, here's the deal. So many of us Think that God is made in our image no he's not made in our image we're made in his image that's I mean we try to understand God through the prism of how we are when we're the created he's the creator but there's a purpose to it God wasn't just like bring somebody in the human race for the wow factor saying look I can make a human being with no human father it's not the wow factor there's a purpose to this he had to be human to save us he had to be God so that he would not have a sin nature and oh, we see this happen so often in the life of Jesus. I love to read about it. You know, he's human enough to go to a wedding of a family member. But he's got enough to turn water into wine. He's human enough to, you know, to go to sleep in the bottom of a boat. He's got enough to get up and stop the storm. He's human enough to drink water. He's got enough to walk on the stuff. He's human enough. To cry at the grave of a friend who died, but he's got enough to call him out so that he walks out under his own power. He is human enough to die on a cross, but he's got enough to rise from the grave. He's human and God at the same time. This is God's ingenious plan. Now, I want to go back and jump right back into Romans chapter 5 because we just saw one person got us into all this trouble. Now, look at this. Here it is in a nutshell. Just as one person did it wrong, got us in all this trouble with sin and death. Another person did it right and got us out of it. But more than just getting out of trouble, he got us into life. That's the reason why I'm going to throw up if I hear about somebody else saving the planet. That's what it took to save this planet. That's what it took to get us back into a right relationship with God. God sent his perfect son into the world, God and human at the same time. He lay on a cross and paid for our sins as if he were guilty so that you and I could receive the gift of his perfect life and his sacrificial death. And when, not give him glory. And when Jesus walked out of the grave under his own power, everything that Adam and Eve lost was regained again. Well, that raises a question. If that happened, why didn't God just say, all right, we've done it. Why are we still here? I mean, the disciples certainly wanted to know that. They, they sort of got it toward the end, you know, after Jesus shows chosen the grave. And they start asking him, is it, is it now? Are you going to, is it now? Is it time for you to restore the kingdom? A lot of you will read this if you read about the ascension. A lot of you come from a, a religious tradition where you celebrate the ascension. And I think that's a wonderful thing. But if you go into acts chapter one and you read about the ascension the disciples were saying to him right before he left is it is it now in other words they realized you have gotten back for us what our first parents lost so are we going to start this thing now and this is kind of cool because jesus basically said guys it's not going to happen in your lifetime it's not for you to know the times and seasons he said not for you why let's go to the next thing here's the big thing that you and i need to focus on number six god needed time a lot of it why to get this good news what's the good news that god has reclaimed the planet through jesus to get this good news out to people and then provide a place for them to connect with others and then learn to help him get the good news out he called it the church well that's where we are today we are part isn't that cool i cannot wait to bring the fourth talk in this series we are part of god's plan and the very reason why God didn't just shut this whole thing down when Jesus walked out of the grave is he wants a very big family. And he loves us. He loves every one of you here today. And he wants you to receive the good. You say, Mark, I don't, I don't believe in God. And if I did believe in God, I don't like him. I don't like you Christians. I don't like you. I don't like to talk. Okay, just want to say a couple things to you. Number one, thank you so much for coming today. And I mean that from the... Depths of, my, I mean, they're from depths of my soul. You are what gets me up in the morning. And for you to take part of your morning and come spend it here, thank you very much. You, you, you may hate everything I'm saying, but if you're here, thank you for being here. Second thing is, you may hate God, but He loves you and there's not a thing in the world you can do about it. <laughs> he loves you very much. So, what's going on right now? Let's look at this. Second Peter. Because a lot of people have the idea, well, why hasn't he come back yet? The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise. Because some people say, Well, well, I've heard about Jesus coming back all my life. Peter just reacted to that. Because he said, There are a lot of people that say, Well, what's going on? is this interesting? Peter wrote this in the first century. And he said, way in the future, there are going to be people that are going to say, Where's the signs of his coming? Because ever since you know, the, the first believers died, Things have rocked on the way they always have. And so what's going on here? And so Peter said, the Lord's not really being slow about his promises. Some people think, no, he is being what? Patient for your sake. Look at this. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to be, to repent. I went to a theology school when I was a very young man, fresh out of high school. And the, the college that I went to and its theology department, had a belief system that I hated then and I hate now. And I debated it when I was in there with my professors, and and it makes me sick at my stomach now. There is some among the pseudo-intellectual Christendom who believe that God has chosen some people to go to heaven and that God has chosen some people to go to hell. Now I want to tell you the verse behind me is like breaking a BB. BB. It is as direct and as dramatic and as straightforward, and what are you missing, that any, uh, any one of us can get it. Now, look at this. I, my Bible says God does not want anyone to be destroyed. Game, set, match. I believe God does not want anybody in hell. You can argue with me until you turn blue in the face, and I will listen to you, and I'll love you, but I want to tell you what I believe. I Muammar more more Gaddafi is probably in hell. He probably is. But I don't think God wanted it. I think God wants every human being to be in heaven with him. I mean, here's the thing. You say, well, Mark, but he, you know, he's a bad dude. He's an enemy. He got a Bible with you today. Just If you do, hold your Bible in your hand. Thirteen books out of the New Testament were written by a man who once hated jesus christ he was the number one enemy of christianity in the world he wanted to stomp christians out he executed men and women he took mothers away from their children just believed for believing in jesus and had them murdered and i'm sure there were christians who said god struck him dead and instead god struck him alive and paul went on to take the word of god the good news all over the world and wrote 13 books of the bible you have in your hand you tell me god wants to destroy people no 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 he does not want anyone to destroy destroy but what does he want You say, well mark he wants everybody to be religious <laughs> don't make me come back there <laughs> <laughs> oh he wants everybody to be baptized well yeah by extension i guess oh he wants everybody to try to do better no He wants everyone to repent now if you grew up like I did in church repentance has a certain context to it because we sort of had the idea that somebody repented if they back in the day we had altar calls and people would come forward to the altar and they would come forward and cry for the things that they have done wrong and for some of us in the back of our mind that's what we think about when we think about repent and that might happen but that's not what repentance means repentance comes from actually two Greek words that are jammed together the prefix is meta we get our our word metabolic metastasize. M-E-T-A, meta just means change. And the second word is the word for mind, nous, or thinking, noia, change of thinking. That is what God wants. I mean, God doesn't want anybody to be destroyed. He wants everybody to do what? Change the mind. Because, see, what happens is we come into this world thinking that we are God. We come into this world thinking it's all about us. But somewhere along the line, we learn that God has got this extraordinary, still unfolding plan, that the Son of God, Jesus, came into our world to die for us. And we hear the good news that he rose from the grave. And we hear the good news that he offers eternal life to anyone freely. And we change our mind and we say, you know what, I'm not, it's not revolving around me. It's Jesus. We change our mind from self to him. We change our mind to believing foolishness and garbage, to believing in Jesus. That is what God desires from you. He just wants you to change your mind. I have got nine minutes to tell you the rest of the world's history or future. I need two hours for this, don't I? I will have another hour, but i got to do the same thing. Uh, Number seven. The church age will end suddenly at an unannounced time with an evacuation, dual-purposed both to rescue the church and to usher in a necessary seven-year final act. (laughs) When I was a kid, I used to hear about uh, what we call the rapture. That word's not in the Bible. It's just that, well, let me just read to you what the Bible says about it, okay? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. For the Christians who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive, that's a couple of interesting words. And remain on the earth, will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Okay. I used to read that, I hear that, hear preachers talk about it, and they would wax eloquent, and they would say, When Jesus comes, first of all, the dead are gonna rise, and then we're gonna just like go up, we just rise up. And I would see pictures that people, artists' pictures of people just like going up. And I'd think, first of all, you need to understand, I'm severe acrophobic, I'm afraid of heights. I mean, here's the thing. I, I didn't even fly until I was 35. I drove all over the country speaking. Finally, I gave up, and I've flown ever since. But you couldn't get me up into the St. Louis Arts with a gun. <laughs> I was speaking in Toronto years ago, and they had this tall tower, and the bottom of it's like plexiglass. And they said, you know what? You can just go up and lie down and let plexiglass over the city. I said, no, I can't. <laughs> um, stay, and I, honestly, I, I, this is fact. stayed in the coffee shop downstairs while they all went up there. And I used to hear preachers talk about when Jesus comes, we're just going to like fly through the crowds, clouds, and I thought, you know what, if I'm still alive, I'll die on the way up. I thought, well, will that be, my, will that be the way it is for me? I mean, I'll, I'll still be alive, but I won't make the rapture. I'll have a heart attack on the way up while I'm going up through the clouds. No. There's an ancillary text to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which, by the way, might just be one of the greatest chapters in the Bible on what happens when a believer dies. In 1 Corinthians chapter fifteen, the Bible says it will happen in a twinkling of an eye. Now that's not a blink or a wink. That's the involuntary twitching of the eyelid. General Electric got into this a long time ago, and they calculated how long it takes for the eyelid to have that involuntarily involuntary flinch, and they calculated it was one twenty-eighth of a second. Then they said it was one forty-six. Now they say it's one one-thousandth. But who's counting? It's just simply this: when Jesus comes, you're here and you're there. I mean, none of this thing about. I mean, the dead may rise first, but that's only for God to know. Because if it happens in one one thousandth of a second, who's going to like watch that little break? I mean, and for for half the world, we'll be asleep. I mean, you go to sleep at night, and you wake up. Ooh, look at that! (laughs) I'm not in Kansas anymore. So cool. Now, here's the thing. A lot of us have heard that through the years, and we thought, oh, this is God. Well, isn't it? Wow, isn't that cool? Isn't that the wow factor? Guys, I want to be real clear on something. God is not getting us out of here that way for the wow factor. He's got purposes and reasons for it. Let me give you this. This is the First Thessalonians chapter 5. We were in 4 a moment ago when we talked about Jesus coming back. The, the chapter breaks weren't put there by God. Those were put there later in the 12th century to help us navigate the Bible. Now, the Bible says this in, in the next chapter. Next section. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, for those of us who grew up in church, we're going to read that, and we're going to say, okay, God did not suffer. It wasn't God's plan for us to go to hell. He wanted to save us. That's not the context at all. If you read the context, God is very specific in what he's talking about here. Wrath here is a reference to that seven-year final act that we call the tribulation period, because that's what God's been talking about. And salvation here is not talking about the kind of salvation when you trust Jesus as Lord and Savior, because see, the us there is people who have already accepted him. So here's what Paul is writing. He's saying this is really good news for all of us who live in number six, this, this church age. For those of us, God did not appoint us to go into the tribulation, but to do what? To receive this. The word here means rescue. To receive Rescue. So one of the reasons for God, you know, allowing us, uh, Jesus to come back and take us home is to rescue us from this seven-year final act. And then secondly, of course, he wants to usher that in. Now, let's talk about the tribulation real briefly for a moment. Number eight, there are at least three purposes in this seven-year final act, sometimes called the tribulation. Many of us read about the tribulation and revelation, and it's an awful thing, horrific thing. I just studied it this week again, and it's, it's un- unimaginable. It would be the worst time in the world's history Nothing has ever occurred like the seven-year tribulation. Just read about it, if you want. It's the toughest flooding for me in the Bible. It's tougher than reading the book of Judges. And I read about that coming. Now, why is that going to happen? There are three reasons. Here's the first reason. Number one, for God to let those who want the world without his grace to get what they want. John, as he wrote his late epistle, said... That there is a spirit of Antichrist. Don't this doesn't mean anything. I'm just taking it off so I can see it a little better, okay? <laughs> Maybe I'm taking it off because I don't want to see it. <laughs> <laughs> John wrote in his epistle about the spirit of Antichrist that is already in the world. Now, what's gonna happen, and the Bible talks about the signs of Jesus' return, is like they're like birth pangs or contractions of a woman. As the as time for birth gets close, the contractions grow closer together and more intense. So what, what the Bible tells us is, is that the signs of Jesus' return are like contractions. As, as they begin to occur, they're going to get more intense, and they're going to get closer together. Now, here's the thing about the tribulation. We are going to watch, we're going to watch the cold wind basically come off of it, and we're going to feel it. We live in a world today, and you don't need, you don't need whether, whether you're a God follower or whether you're an in, you know, non-theist, you don't need my help to come up with the realization that the culture that we live in is pushing back more and more against God. We've suddenly discovered that the Constitution forbids people to pray at graduations. Our founding fathers and mothers would have been freaked by that, because they, they had prayer meetings before they went into congressional sessions to write the Constitution. But we've discovered since the 60s that it's in the Constitution. It is a living and breathing document, whatever that means. But somehow, and and here's the thing, it's not about Constitution. It is about, in our culture, there is a growing, as John said, spirit of antichrist. You can believe about anything unless you believe in Jesus. There is an anti-God feeling in our world. And it's going to get greater and greater as we go into the tribulation. And here's the thing. See, I think those who push back against God, they see God as the victim here. We're going to push, and the Bible talks about this in Psalm 2. We don't want God around. But you you have to understand something. If you ask God to leave the room, he's not the victim. We're the victims. In, In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, the Bible says that Christ holds all things together. You know, sometimes when a disaster happens, we say, where is God? Are you kidding me? Why aren't there disasters every day? Why aren't there tsunamis every day? Why aren't there 8.6 on the Richter scale earthquakes every day? It is because the Lord is holding it together. It is his mercy. And basically, if you want to know why things are so horrific in the tribulation period, God is saying, you want me to leave the room? I'll step out of the room and I'll let you do what you want. And basically, during that point, Satan will run his counterfeit program. He'll bring his counterfeit Messiah, Antichrist. He will demand that the world will be worshiped and it will get worse and worse and worse second reason for the tribulation is for God to pour out his just wrath and I love this one the third reason is to give Israel another opportunity to recognize their king Jesus doesn't just belong to the world he especially belongs to Israel because he is the king Oh, time just goes too fast he has a right to the throne as we're gonna see in just a moment when Jesus comes back he's gonna rule and reign So. And what will happen in the tribulation, as as the Antichrist so clearly proves to be a counterfeit, Israel will recognize their king. Look at Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer. This is really cool because Zechariah is writing 500 years before Jesus was born. And and he's not just writing about Jesus' death, he's writing about the future. Look at this. This is the last days. I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the family of David. Who's that? That's the nation of Israel. And on the people of Jerusalem. Then... Look at this. They will look on me whom they have pierced. Can God tell the future or not? The Jewish form of execution was stoning. They didn't even know about crucifixion yet. Crucifixion was a Gentile Roman way of execution. Rome didn't even control the world yet. In Zechariah 500 years before Jesus, he didn't say they'll look on him whom they've stoned. He said they'll look on him whom they have pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. Oh, that's going to be an extraordinary time. Number nine, the curtain on this final act will be brought down by none other than Jesus Christ who will return as king to usher in a thousand-year paradise so mankind can get the idea of what God intended in the first place. A lot of you who've studied the Bible through the years, you say, well, I sort of don't understand. What's this thousand-year thing? And then we all go into what we call the eternal state. Why doesn't God just take us into the eternal state? What's the, th- the point of the thousand years? God wants to show what he intended in the first place. He wants to show us the world the way he designed it to be. He wants to pull it back to paradise and make Jesus king. Look at this. Then I saw heaven, this is in Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven open and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True. His eyes were like flames of fire and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his title was the word of God. The armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen. Isn't that interesting? Armies don't usually wear white. but it's not gonna, battle's not gonna last long, so it's okay. The armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen followed him on white horses. On his robe and at his thigh was written his title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Hey, I love this, when Jesus is coming back, he's not coming to take sides, he's coming to take charge, he's not coming to take a pole, he's coming to take over. And I love that, because if this world has proved one thing in all the recorded history, it is proven that it cannot govern itself We are living in the finest form of human government ever devised, a Republican form of democracy. And we know how dysfunctional it is. (laughs) And it's the best. But wow, can you imagine what it's going to be like when we have a king who loves the world enough to give his life for it? What a kingdom that's going to be. Look at Revelation chapter 21 verse 6. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. That's going to be a great time. Got to hustle. Number 10, the thousand-year kingdom will end with the beginning, a new earth, new heaven, what theologians call the eternal state. And Jesus, the scripture talks about this in Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And I love verse 5. If you're an antique lover, you probably won't love it quite as much as I do. I don't like shopping for antiques. That's just used stuff to me. (laughs) I heard that. I agree brother and the one sitting on the throne said look I'm making everything new. well this series starts next week <laughs> I just wanted to give you an overview because where are we right now we're right in between six and seven we're right in between that time where God wants us to get the good news out and see this whole series is a way for the Holy Spirit to, oh, I don't have a watch this so I don't know what time it is this is the way for the Holy Spirit To sort of grab us by the shoulders because here's the deal here's the thing some of you when, when the moment i mention prophecy you're like i don't think i want to come back for this anymore and that's either because somebody unskillfully preached it or because you are really in love with this world you claim to be a christian but you are in love with this world and any thought of anything coming along and unsettling your world and so consequently you're in conflict here i'm telling you we americans need uh, the the fourth week of this series i'm going to talk about how we're i think we're in the last two minutes i don't mean two minutes literally it's just like in a football game i think we're in at the end and so i think the holy spirit is grabbing us by the shoulders and saying hey wake up your job here is to make a difference in the world not to be a conspicuous consumer i think we're between number six and number seven and let me just I, i promise i'll take one more one more minute or so and then we'll end this message There are signs about Jesus' return in the Bible, many of them. Jesus gave them cataclysmic things, earthquakes, all that kind of stuff. And there are signs about people's attitudes and things that we'll talk about as we move along. The one thing that had to happen, this is really interesting, the one huge thing that had to happen before Jesus could come back is the reformation of the nation of Israel. Because the disciples, and this is a, there's, a, there's, there's a sermon that Jesus preached in Matthew 24 and 25 that we call the Olivet Discourse. And it's all about Jesus coming back. His disciples said, when are you going to come back? We want to know. And Jesus said, okay, I'll give you some ideas. And he started telling them, there'll be these things happen, these things happen. But he got down, I think, to verse 12, and he said, "But well, let me just tell you this. He said, the sign of the fig tree. He said, when the fig tree puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near and it's about to happen. Fig tree is always a symbol of Israel. Well, for 2,500 years, Israel did not exist as a nation. 500 years before Jesus was born, it went into captivity to the Babylonians. They never had a king after that. They've been in captivity. They've been dispersed all over the world. No people group has ever lasted 2,500 years without a homeland and without an identity. But the Jewish people did. And in 1948, Israel became a nation. And it is so cool because I think the most seminal moment, the, the the thing that made the most difference in Israel becoming a nation had to do with the United States. God bless Harry Truman. I mean, one thing about Harry Truman, you can love him or hate him, but he can make a decision. You know, the left hated him for bombing Japan, the right hated him for firing Doug MacArthur. But he was told everybody in his administration, basically except for Clark Clifford, said, do not recognize Israel. His own Secretary of State, General Marshall, said to him, if you recognize Israel, and if the election were held next week, I would vote against you, his own Secretary of State. But the British pulled out, and in May of 1948... David Ben-Gurion declared that the state of Israel was a nation, and 11 minutes later, the United States said, we recognize Israel. We're proud to be the first to recognize Israel as a nation, and the other dominoes fell, and we are where we are today, probably in the last two minutes of world history before number seven occurs. How cool is that? Thanks for listening. Sorry I went into overtime. Now, that's not preaching. The series starts next week. If you're here today and you say, Mark, I've never trusted Jesus as Savior. I want to receive God's plan. I want to do something. I want to pray with you because it is a gift. Jesus is a gift. You don't have to be religious. You don't have to be good to go to heaven. You can't be good enough. You just need Jesus. And if you're here today and you've never invited him in, I want to do something. In these brief moments, I want to pray with you and give you a chance to ask him to come into your life. Would you pray with me, please? These aren't magic words. What matters is how you feel in your heart. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I believe you love me. I ask you to come in and make me God's child. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose from the grave. And I change my mind to invite you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name.